Good evening. It's been a year since we've had in-person Wednesday night class, and as opposed to staring directly down the lens of a camera and being able to see all of you, it's really exciting, and to know that we've got more that are joining us online. And that's the reason we're not going to take prayer requests out loud like we normally would in a Bible class because we have people that are joining us online. Uh, But I do want to say before we get started that for upcoming weeks and tonight, if you have any prayer requests, if you're watching online or if you're here in the auditorium, you can email me at wes at ccmcdermott.org, wes at ccmcdermott.org, and email me your prayer requests and we'll circulate those via email, um, indicate if it's if something that you want to keep confidential, and we won't do that, uh, but if it's something that you would like for the group to be praying about, you can email that to me, and we'll circulate it via email, and then we'll be praying for that as a class. So we do want these classes to be as intimate as possible, uh, given, the, given the situation, and we are going to throw out some discussion questions here in the beginning. In fact, we have special microphones so that hopefully the people at home can hear uh, the question or the, your answer as well as we start talking about that. We'll we'll get into those in just a second, but let's go ahead and start with a prayer tonight. Father, we are so thankful. I am overwhelmed with gratitude. I have missed being with our church family so very much over the last year, and it has reminded me just how important and significant time together studying scripture and encouraging each other really is. And Father, we We pray, Father, that you help us to drink in this moment and to be thankful for what we have right now and to look forward to the days ahead as things continue to get better. And Father, we pray that things do continue to get better and that we can more and more come back together in person and that we can more and more encourage one another. And Father, tonight as we study the scriptures and we seek to know you more, we seek to worship you and to serve you in a way that's even more pleasing to you. We pray, Father, that you humble our hearts, that you open our eyes, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us, Father, to be your people and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We thank you, Father, for Jesus, for his grace and his mercy, for his sacrifice by which we have been grafted into your family. And, Father, it is a joy And what a privilege it is to to know you, to be known by you, to be called your children. And Father, we pray that you bless our time together tonight. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are talking about God. We are talking about theology. Who is the Lord? What does it mean to, uh, to think rightly about God? Who is God, and so I thought it would be good to start with some discussion question, discussion questions because I can't do that with a camera at all. And so now you're, you're real life people, and now I can ask you questions, and hopefully we'll get a little bit of dialogue started as we we begin tonight. So the first question is this: How is God the Father pictured? Whether that's pictured by just people in general, maybe the way you picture God the Father, maybe the way that God is depicted in artwork. How is God? Pictured. Disciplinarian. So, disciplinarian. A disciplinarian. Okay, good. Yeah. So, so abstractly, yeah, disciplinarian. Yeah, I like that. A relational being. Yeah, a relational being. Yes, absolutely. Relational disciplinarian. I think that. 
visions, you know, and clouds, thunderbolts and lightning raining down on Earth. Yeah, yeah, like Zeus, if you didn't hear Zeus up in the clouds with thunderbolts raining down. Yeah, absolutely, that's definitely how a lot of people picture God. If you're just walking in, we're talking about how people picture God the Father, or how you picture God the Father, or how God is depicted in artwork or conversation or whatever the case may be. Any other thoughts? Think about as the creator. Creator, yeah. Definitely. Creator, relational, disciplinarian, like Zeus with thunderbolts. What else? Benevolent, yeah, absolutely, benevolent. Yeah. Protector. protector, yeah, protector, yeah. And we could even, like with some of these things, like protector or relational or disciplinary, all of these different ideas, you could even think about some of the metaphors that Scripture uses for who God is and what God is. God is a rock, God is a fortress, God is, and so we could use those metaphors as a, sort of a mental image of who God is. What else? And we could talk about the, the rightness of some depictions or the, the inaccuracy of some depictions. Some people talk about God kind of like he's a genie in a bottle or like he's a heavenly Santa Claus, like he's just an old grandpa up in the sky. Yes, sir? That God is the universe? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, that you could get into some different philosophies or religious thought in that God is everything or is in everything and God is the universe itself. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely some people that think about God that way. Anything else? We might think of some of the metaphors that Scripture uses, like we said uh, a refuge or a rock, or we could talk about God as a shepherd. Um, even some of the, um, the, the things that we picture maybe like a bright light coming down out of heaven, and so we might think of God as light. We could think about something like what John says in 1 John, that God is love. And so some things are more abstract and some things are more um, artistic. When I think about God, I, I do, I, I have a hard time not thinking about him like the pictures of Zeus, like an old man with a long beard, and very strong, sitting on his throne. And so I do have this mental image of, uh, of someone, but even, even in that, even in that, God isn't actually a, a human being, right? God isn't human. God is spirit, Jesus says in John 4. So God is spirit, and he's not a human. So some of the ways that we think about God might help us, but at the same time, we're not really capturing the fullness. And that really leads us to the second question is this. What does it mean to say that God is incomprehensible? That's what we're going to talk about tonight is the incomprehensibility. I've been practicing saying that word. The incomprehensibility of God. What does it mean to say that God is incomprehensible? What's that? Unknowable. Unknowable. Great word. Yeah, unknowable. So maybe in my mind, I think about the totality of his um, of his attributes are not such that we can really comprehend them all. Mm. So we using those words we did, those adjectives, we get them in parts that we can sort of identify with, 
Mm, so many great words right there. Yeah, the, the totality of God we can't comprehend. Tyra? Yeah, I was thinking, uh, well, God, I think he's infinite in all his attributes, but yet we have finite minds. Mm. So there's just no way that we can completely grasp, you know, his nature, his character. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have the capacity to do that. Yeah. I think it's like we have to be God in order to do that, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That's, that's one of the, the reasons why we can't comprehend God is because he is infinite and we are, by, by very nature, finite. And so many of the things that make God God make God incomprehensible to us. Now, that's not to say we can't know things about God, as you guys have pointed out, but we can't know the totality of God because we really can't even comprehend him. In fact, there was a, a metaphor I heard one time, and I don't know if this is why the story was created, but the story was about a two-dimensional world, a flat world, and there was this three-dimensional object, and in the story, the three-dimensional object is God, but in the story, it's like a ball, so like a sphere, trying to come into a flat world. And so if you can imagine yourself being a flat being, and you're two-dimensional, and this three-dimensional object comes into the flat world, you would see it two-dimensionally. And then, so the, the sphere tries to explain itself to the two-dimensional beings, and the more he tries to, well, I'm like a, a circle, and the two-dimensional person can picture a circle, and they're like, well, then flip it. And that, even that concept of flipping it three-dimensionally there's really no way to even comprehend that idea. And so the, the circle or the sphere passes up and down through the two-dimensional world and it gets bigger and it gets smaller, but just that third dimension is incomprehensible to a two-dimensional being. And so there's so much about God that is unknowable because as Tyrone said, we are finite beings and by our very nature and by God's very nature, it's very difficult for us to comprehend some of the things about God. So let's look at some passages. Psalm 145 and verse 3. Psalm 145 and verse 3. We're just going to go through several psalms here real quick. It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is is unsearchable. Psalm 147 and verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. So his greatness is unsearchable. His understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 139 verses 4 through 6 even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So over and over again through the Psalms, you see these ideas that God is so great, so big, so majestic, so infinite that we really can't wrap our minds around this infinite God. And as I was just pondering and meditating on this today, I was thinking about some of the things in, in my world, in our world, that I don't even understand. That somebody understands, but I don't understand. I don't understand cell phones. I mean, I didn't even really understand landlines, but at least that sort of made sense to me. It sort of makes sense about turning that that audio wave into an electrical current and it goes through the line. That kind of makes sense. But this idea that you can, I could pick up my 
smartphone and I can FaceTime with my sisters when they were living in Europe or in Africa and I could FaceTime and instantaneously we're seeing each other's images and talking to each other, hearing and seeing each other over the ocean. That doesn't even make sense to me. I, I have no idea. I can't wrap my head around that. And there's so many things that are that way in our world. And if those things, the human body, I mean, our body, ourselves, this is me. And there's so much about me that I don't understand and really can't even begin to understand. And that even medical professionals are just now discovering and trying to discover and trying to figure out. And they do nothing but study the human body. And this is, this is, these are things that we can theoretically understand because they are in our realm of understanding. But then God, who is the creator of all of this, is infinitely more incomprehensible than any of the things in our plane of existence. And so to say that God is incomprehensible, that there are things about God that we can't really wrap our mind around would be probably an understatement. But if God could be understood, if God could sort of, the, the saying is, be put into a box where we could just say, well, here's all the essential things you need to know about God. Here's everything you need to know about God, and you can perfectly understand him. That would probably be an indication that he wasn't really God. If you could comprehend him, he's probably a figment of your own imagination, right? And if we're honest, a lot of times, as humans, we do create a God in our own image. We create a God to worship a God that we can understand, a God that thinks like we think, agrees with us all of the time. In fact, Tim Keller, an author that I like to read a lot, says that if, if you find that, that the God that you worship doesn't disagree with you or you don't disagree with him, it's probably an indication that you're not in a relationship with the real God, the true God, right? If you are always agreeing with everything God thinks and everything God does, and God is always seeming to affirm everything that you do and everything that you believe, it's probably you're not in a relationship with a real person even, even another human being. You don't always agree with them. They don't always see everything eye to eye, much less God. God isn't going to agree with you all of the time. You're, there's going to be things about God that you just... Why does God want me to do this? Why does the scripture say to do that? Why do we have to live this way? And, and we really wouldn't want it any other way because if, if you find that you're always agreeing with him or that he makes perfect sense to you, then that's probably an indication that you've created a God in your own image rather than worshiping the God who created you in his own image. Uh, Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Unsearchable and inscrutable. But, but, that being said, this incomprehensible God wants to be known. And that's amazing in and of itself, isn't it? It's amazing. He wants us to know him. He is unfathomable. He is, his ways are inscrutable. His, his judgments are unsearchable. His greatness is unable to be measured, yet he says, I want you to know me. 
I, I want to know you. In fact, the, the whole scriptures could be summed up by God wanting to dwell with his people. That's what even like the book of Numbers is all about, about the, the wilderness generation wandering in the wilderness and this, this incomprehensible God, this God that you can't put in a box, that you really can't wrap your mind around, this God that is so big and so awesome and so mighty that is not a figment of anybody's imagination, but he is the creator God, says, I want to dwell in a tent with my covenant people. And that just gives me chills, doesn't it? That this God, this God that is so huge, so amazing, so wonderful, just unable to be fathomed, says, I want to dwell with my covenant people. I want to live in a tent to be with my people. And of course, they always realize this, this tabernacle or later when they built the temple, it can't contain the fullness of God. It couldn't even contain the hem of his garment. He's so big and so awesome. He can't live in a house, but he wants to. He wants to be with his people and he wants his people to know him. I like this in the book that we're studying through. There's a quote from R.C. Sproul and it says this, and I thought this would be good for us to think about. When teaching theology proper, I always start with God's incomprehensibility because humility demands that we understand at the outset that we are like infants struggling to understand a genius. I like that. We are like infants struggling to understand a genius who is speaking to us in our own terms. To whatever degree it's possible for his creatures to apprehend him, God has made himself known. So whatever it is that we can know about God, it's because God has said, I want you to know this about me. I'm trying to explain this to you about myself. Whatever it is that we can know about God, God has intentionally revealed to us. But we have to understand that it's like a genius, think about Albert Einstein or something, trying to explain himself to a toddler or to an infant and say, this is who I am. This is, what do you do for a living? Well, okay, here's what I do. And trying to explain rocket science or trying to explain physics to an infant. You're going to have to put it in totally different terms than you would to somebody that's on your own level, right? And so that's that's who we are. We are like these infants, these specks that are trying to understand this ununderstandable God, this incomprehensible God. And whatever degree to which we do understand him, it's because he's revealed himself to us. Now, theologians say that there's two ways that God reveals himself to us, two types of revelation. The first one is called general revelation. Anybody know what that is? General revelation? God reveals himself through nature, right? God reveals himself through nature. And we can, several times, both in the Old and the New Testaments, that, that nature itself tells us something about God. And we've probably all had that feeling, haven't we? Or that thought where we've stood at the edge. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I imagine that would be the feeling. I've stood at the top of a 14,000-foot mountain, at the summit of a mountain, and you just, you feel so tiny, and you feel like the world is so big and whoever created this is amazing. And I imagine if you were ever to use a telescope and look into the stars or you were to have a microscope and look at a cell, it would be hard not to 
think whoever designed this, whoever made this was amazing. So we call the first general revelation, passages like Psalm 19, we'll read Psalm 19, 1 through 6, says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You see how the psalmist is talking about the creation? It's almost like like the creation itself is speaking. Like every day is, is pouring out speech and knowledge. Like if you'll just listen, creation itself is singing a song. It's preaching a sermon. It's making a proclamation. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy across the sky every day, comes out of its chamber and runs across the sky. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the psalmist says, you just, you just look at everything God has made, and it is a declaration, a proclamation, a sermon every day about the majesty and the work of our God. And then Paul echoes the same sentiment in Romans 1, 19 and 20. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. And he's even talking about the Gentile world. He's talking about all human beings. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. It was intentional. It was intentional that he created the world in such a way that it would be a, an ongoing proclamation of his greatness. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. He even speaks to the idea of morality, that there's something of the law of God, that something of right and wrong that's even written into the DNA of creation itself. And so that people are without excuse for looking at the world and looking at creation and knowing something of God. Now again, all of this, all of these things, standing at the Grand Canyon or standing at the mountain or whatever, all of these things might reveal or do reveal something of the nature of God, but you wouldn't have a very deep theology just from nature itself, right? And so that's not the only way God has revealed himself to humanity. The second way is special revelation. So there's general revelation, things that God generally revealed to everybody. And then number two is special revelation. Any guess what special revelation is? That's when God reveals himself through, say it again. The Bible, yes, absolutely. So God reveals himself through scripture, through the prophets, right? And so we have this special revelation. Now, here's where I'll disagree, not disagree, but just want to to add a little note. When R.C. Sproul said that God reveals himself to us by speaking in our own terms, I agree with that on the one hand, yes, because even through general revelation, he's speaking to us on our terms, And through special revelation, he's speaking to us in in words, right? He's speaking to us in words and ideas. And so he's speaking to us in human language. But at the same time, I think we also have to acknowledge that that scripture isn't written in our terms. In fact, all of us, if we had 
had the original manuscripts of scripture, we wouldn't even be able to read them, right? So he didn't speak to us in universal terms. And that might bother us sometimes, right? We might look at that and say, well, why not? Like, why? He, he just spoke to the Hebrew people. He, he revealed himself specifically to the Hebrew people. And then later, the New Testament written in Greek, but still to the Jewish people. But that's how he chose to reveal himself. He chose one family. And even in that, even in the fact that God chose one family and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And I'm not going to reveal myself in this special way to every group of people. I'm going to reveal myself in this special way to one group of people. Now, it would be really easy for them, and some of them did, begin to think, oh, yeah, it's because we're special, right? That's because we're awesome. And and God would remind them over and over again the whole story of Jonah, right? It's not because you're the only people group that I love. And it's not because you're better than all of the other people groups. It's because I'm going to use your seed to bless all nations of mankind. But it also means that for us, that are the nations, that are the the Gentile peoples, that we are this multi-ethnic family that God always had in mind that he was going to bring into his covenant family, we have to understand that the special revelation was spoken to a specific group of people in a specific language, at a specific time in history, a specific place in the world. And if we're going to understand that special revelation, we have to not just assume, well, this is easy for everybody to understand because this this book of the Bible, this Bible was just given to all of us. Well, yes and no. It's for us, but it wasn't written to us. And so we have to see this story of who God is through the lens of its original audience because God did put it in human terms, but not in universal terms. He he gave us the scriptures in Hebrew and in Greek, and then we have to see the scriptures that way. But that being said, and we, we could talk lots more about that, about how God has revealed himself through the scriptures, but that's the the whole thing, right? Genesis to Revelation. But there's even something even more special about special revelation. What is, what is the, the highlight, the climax of God revealing himself to humanity? Jesus, right? Jesus. Jesus is the climax of that. And this is what the New Testament says over and over and over again, that the best way to comprehend the incomprehensible God is to look at his son, Jesus. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 1. I think this is exactly why John writes his gospel account the way that he does. He starts it in very similar words, with very similar words to what other book in the Bible? Genesis, right? In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John puts it that way. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. This This word, this revelation of himself, this prophetic word that was always coming to the prophets, this prophetic word that was with God, was God, was distinct from God because it's with him, but yet at the same time it is divine. And so this word, this prophetic word by which God had been revealing himself to the Jewish people over and over and over again for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, this word was 
with God and was God. And then he says in verse 14, the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So it's one thing to read the stories and to say, these stories, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and Ruth and all of the prophets and all of the writings, these all teach us something of God. And for us to be good theologians and to say, God revealed himself to these people over and over and over again. But we even have something that makes all of that pale by comparison, that this prophetic word became human became flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, he was rejected by his own people. But he says in verse 19, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him, what? Known. Jesus, the word who became flesh, makes God known to us. And so, if Christians are going to be good theologians, then we can't just look at the written scriptures and say, this tells us something of God. That's true. We have something that that even goes beyond that. We have the person and the work of Jesus to know this is the one who makes God known. In fact, Jesus would say about himself, John 14, verse 8, Philip asks the Lord, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, And it is enough for us. Jesus has been talking about the Father over and over and over again. The Father sent me. The Father sent me. I'm doing the Father's will. I'm doing the Father's will. All through the book of John. All through the gospel account of John. He's always talking about his Father. And so Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The incomprehensible God became human. Now, that's not to say that Jesus is the Father. That's not what Jesus said, right? Jesus didn't say he was the Father. But he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you know the Father. You know as much as a human being could possibly know about the Father by looking at Jesus. And Jesus says to his disciples, I've been with you all this time. And if you've spent all of this time with me and you've looked at me and you've come to know me, you have been seeing the Father because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And again, John is writing this down for us, for his audience, right? So that we could know the same thing. That Jesus is the word of God, the divine word of God that was with God and was God from the very beginning and became a human being. And that through Jesus, we too might see the Father. You don't have to sit down at the dinner table with Jesus in the flesh to see him. You don't have to to sit at the the fire and have Jesus cook you breakfast, even though that'd be amazing, and I can't wait for that to happen. But you don't have to sit there in the flesh to see him. Because if you've read through these gospel accounts, and you think about him, and you dwell on him, and you come to know him, that by knowing him, 
you know the Father. Now, that's not to say that the Old Testament scriptures aren't important and significant because you can't, you can't really understand Jesus unless you understand his context. You can't understand Jesus unless you understand his Jewish heritage. You can't understand Jesus unless you understand the prophets. You can't understand Jesus unless you understand Moses. But, but the claim of the New Testament is that you really can't understand Moses unless you understand Jesus. Which is it? Which comes first? It's a circle, isn't it? It's more like a circle where you can't, you can't really know Jesus unless you know Moses and David and the prophets and Abraham and all of these promises. You can't really understand Jesus, but you really can't understand those other books, theologically speaking. Who really is that God? Because there's a lot, isn't there, in the Old Testament? If you just read through it, there's a lot. You think, who is this God? This God that on the, on the one hand, I mean, Uzzah or Nadab and Abihu or these stories where God strikes someone dead or these stories where God is incredibly gracious and merciful and forgiving. You think, who is this God and what should I think about him and how should I picture him? Who is he? What is his nature? Who is this God? And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you really want to understand who God is, look at me and I will show you who the Father is. And then so we, we understand Jesus through the lens of the scriptures, but then we also understand the scriptures through the lens of the pers- person and the work of Jesus. Look at Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Colossians 1.15. I mean, these, these claims that the New Testament is making about who Jesus is, the claims that Jesus makes about himself are huge, aren't they? He says, Paul says in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You cannot see God, but you can see Jesus. And these, a lot of the people in Paul's day had seen him and been with him. And even if they hadn't, like Paul, actually seen him, God has become tangible. God has become embodied. God has become imaged. Because again, as we started this class, a lot of the things that we know about God are abstract, right? They're just abstract ideas. But all of these abstract ideas that God had revealed about himself, both through nature and through scripture, both general revelation and special revelation, became embodied in Jesus. So much so that Paul could say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is created, right? Jesus isn't a created being, but he's the firstborn which means he is head. He is supreme over all creation. He is the firstborn. He is in the hierarchy, the first over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
That's Paul's point throughout Colossians is that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is better. So don't fall for any other philosophies. Don't fall for any other heresies. Don't fall for any other teachings. Fix your eyes on Jesus, as we've been saying around here. For in him, in Jesus, all, how much? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's amazing, isn't it? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So before, in in the scriptures, we have this story about the invisible God, the incomprehensible God who so wants his people to know him, so wants to reveal himself to his people, so wants to dwell with his people that he would just have his presence be in a tent in the wilderness. And then instead of living in a tent with his people, he tabernacles with them as a human being. Jesus takes on flesh and takes up his dwelling. That's literally what John 1 means, is that he tabernacled with his people. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1 of Colossians. Colossians 2, 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's good, isn't it? In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now again, it doesn't change the fact that God is incomprehensible. It doesn't change the fact that God is so huge and so majestic and so wonderful and so big and so unfathomable and his ways are inscrutable. It doesn't change any of those adjectives or any of those truths, but it does say that all of God's essential qualities are embodied in Jesus. And if you want to know the Father, look at Jesus, because in him are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, we could spend a lifetime just looking at Jesus and trying to understand Jesus, but it's a whole lot easier to understand God who became a man than it is just abstract ideas to piece together just different stories and different thoughts and different revelations that God revealed about himself. All of these things become embodied in Jesus. And then Paul says in Colossians 2 and verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So again, here's how I sum all of that up, that Christian theology begins and ends with Jesus. That, that is our theology. Our theology, who is God? Our study of God is Jesus. That's our answer. That's the answer to Christian theology. What is Christian theology? It's Jesus. All the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
Now, what does that mean? Again, that doesn't mean that we say, well, we don't need the Old Testament. We don't need the, the rest of these scriptures. We absolutely do because you can't understand Jesus unless you understand him in light of the law and the prophets and the writings because he was a first century Jew. He, he wasn't a 21st century American. We can't, we can't just assume that Jesus spoke our language or revealed God to humanity in our own terms because he didn't. He spoke to the people in his day in their own terms. And he came to them on the terms of the Jewish Messiah. But if we are going to know God, then we have to understand this Jesus who makes God fully known. And so, again, we have to understand Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua. We have to understand all of these scriptures and how they point to Jesus and how Jesus embodies all of those things. But then we have to go back and read those scriptures through the lens of Jesus. So we read all of these things pointing to Jesus or we read all of these things and then it informs us about what did Jesus mean when he said this? What did Jesus mean when he said that? What does it mean that he's the Messiah? What does it mean that he is the high priest and that he makes a sacrifice on our behalf? It's really hard to even understand those concepts about redemption and salvation and holiness and purity unless we understand them through the Jewish scriptures. But then to understand the God of those scriptures, we look at Jesus. And to know this is how Jesus how God makes himself fully known is through his son, Jesus. And ultimately, the cross stands for all time to say God punishes sin, God deals with sin, God bears sin, God takes care of the sin problem, God rescues his people, God is merciful, God is just, God keeps his promises. Who is God? look at Jesus, and to understand Jesus, look at the cross. Again, we spent a lifetime. That's not to say, well, that's really makes it really simple. It doesn't make it simple, but it does bring it in a condensed form so that we can understand that all of these ideas, all of these abstract ideas, all of this theology is embodied in Jesus. Jesus makes the Father fully known. So, as we go throughout this, this study and as we think about some of these characteristics of God, his omnipotence, he's all-powerful, his omnipresence, he's present everywhere, his omniscience, he knows everything. As we think through all of these sort of classical ideas about the nature of God, I don't want us to lose sight that Christian theology begins and ends with Jesus. Because it's one thing to say, well, what is a God? Or what, what does God have to be in order for him to be God? And for us to talk about all of these sort of big concepts, we, we can and we should talk about all of those things and how scripture testifies to those things. But if you really want to understand the nature of God, look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made yourself fully known through your son. And that you have invited us in the spirit to come and be known by you and to know you. Father, we have not yet even begun to scratch the surface in our own lives, in our own journeys of discipleship, in knowing you. But Father, we pray that you, that you keep us on that journey of coming to know Jesus 
and through him coming to know you. May we open up the scriptures, both the things that happened before the incarnation and the things that have happened since, and help us, Father, to read them through what we know of you through Jesus. And Father, we're so incredibly thankful that you have included us in your family, that you have included us in your plan through Jesus and in Jesus. Father, as we leave here tonight, we pray that you will help us to walk by your spirit, help us be full of love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.